Uh, But if you can, let's join in prayer for just a moment over Jackson and Donna and prepare for our time in the Word. Father, we rejoice in Christ this morning. He is the one. We, we, everything we do, we are asking and desiring that we just shine a spotlight on Christ. We don't want to lift up anybody. Not one person is to be elevated above another. Rather, Christ is to be over all as we all celebrate him. And yet also we recognize just the incredible calling on Jackson's life and your desire to send him and his wife, Donna. God, we pray over them right now as a congregation. We pray for our pastor, Jackson Crum, and his wife, Donna Crum, as you have just given them a tremendous gift to be able to reach people in Turkey, and they have had a long legacy of serving the church there. We pray that in these next two years, as they prepare to go, God, that you would give them favor and grace and show your blessing upon their life. Open doors. Even this week, we read the news of what's happening to Christians in Turkey as one pastor was just released out of prison in Turkey. God, we know that it's a dangerous calling they're stepping into. God, we pray over their safety, that you would not just keep them safe, but that you would further the gospel through their work. God, thank you that we get to be a part of a church like this that sends people for the gospel to the nations. And we pray over our time in the Word right now as we open the Word God, bring about that transformation. Whatever got into Jackson and Donna to get them to listen that way, God, I pray that it gets into us. Pray that in Jesus' holy name. Amen. Well, this last week, my wife and I had a chance to get away. We were in Florida for the week, enjoyed a little bit of vacation. We were only a few miles outside of Hurricane Michael, yet somehow we only had half a day of rain. I don't know how that worked. Uh, We were afraid we were going to have to get out of there. But, you know, I made a decision before I went on vacation. Our staff team, me, Jenny Wasserman, who oversees our children's ministry, and Sarah Lee, who's our ministry coordinator, the three of us have been reading this book on technology. Uh, I've actually read a series of books recently about how technology is kind of owning us and getting control of our life. And I made a decision before I left that I was going to delete my email app from my phone. I wanted to be present. I wanted to be totally present. See, the reason I made this decision was because I have this awful habit I all the time pull my phone out of my pocket and I just click it. I just open my email. I wonder if a new email came in. I just checked 20 seconds ago. It's not important to know if another email came in the last 20 seconds. But all the time I'll be walking down the street, pull my phone out, look at a new email. Nope. Okay, put it back. Walk the next block. I wonder if anyone emailed me this time. Go back. And I've realized how distracted I've been. These books I've been reading, some are from Christian authors, some are from secular authors, but they all kind of say the same thing is that we are becoming enslaved to the very tools that are supposed to be setting us free. And so I said, you know what, for vacation, I want to delete it. Let me tell you what happened. It was the most freeing week I've had in a long time. To be free from this enslavement to this tool that had me constantly checking it. And, And there came this point halfway through where we were with our kids at this trampoline park in Florida, just having a great time, where normally I'd be standing off to the side and I'd kind of pull my phone out. But the temptation wasn't even there anymore. I was free from that temptation for just a moment. And I could just be there at the trampoline park with my kids and watch them jump around. Well, now I'm back from vacation. <laughs> and I have this kind of two-sided mentality. On the one side, I don't want to lose the freedom I just experienced. I, it was so great. Why would I want to step back into slavery after I just experienced freedom? Yet by the same time, there's this nagging feeling like, I feel like I should be constantly checking my email. Wouldn't it be better if I had my email on my phone? 
I haven't made my decision what I'm going to do yet. It's still off my phone. So if you've emailed me and I haven't gotten back to you, it's because I don't have my email on my phone. Give me a few days. This concept of being enslaved and then being set free. But then looking backwards at the slavery we were once in is actually what's at the heart and the core of the book of Galatians that we're studying. Though it's not email that we're enslaved to, though, to be honest with you, sometimes it feels like email is a very good illustration of the slavery they were describing. In, in the book of Galatians, Paul's making this incredible argument. He's saying, look, when you were a slave to the law, when you thought that you, through your moral superiority and achievement, could please God, you were constantly checking yourself. You're constantly looking over your shoulder, constantly wondering if you've done enough, constantly going back to the law and saying, I, I got to check again, I got to check again. You walk down the street, you're not sure if the law has gotten over you, so you got to check it again, check it again. And this law of trying to achieve something before God was exhausting us, and frankly, it was enslaving us. Paul says, look, since Christ has come, you've been set free. In fact, last week, as Kenson preached, we actually got introduced to the term slavery and freedom in the book of Galatians, two central key words and themes that will propagate throughout the rest of the book. He says, you have been set free from trying to find your life, find your meaning, find your worth in God by trying to achieve moral superiority. Rather, Christ has done it on your behalf. So stop looking over your shoulder at the law. Live in the freedom of what it means to be in Christ. You don't have to wonder if you're living up anymore. Christ lived up for you. If you fail, Christ did it all on your behalf. Why would we ever, after experiencing that freedom, go back to the law? Yet Paul says that's precisely what we do time and time again. We get, we get offered the freedom in Christ, and then we start to slip back into law. Today's verse is going to ask a very specific question, and it's going to ask us to ask ourselves, how do our actions, specifically our interpersonal relationships, what I mean by that is your relationship with the person sitting next to you, in front of you, behind you, and across the aisle from you, how does your relationship with those people reflect your belief that you have been set free from the law in Christ? Sometimes I think we think those are two utterly distinct camps. My relationships, what does that have to do with my moral superiority and how I find my justification with God. But in fact, Paul's going to connect those two things and he's going to say how you relate to one another actually reveals what you believe about your relationship with God. And right in the center of our chapter today is Galatians 2.20. Ironically, this is literally the footer of every email I send. <laughs> this is what's at the bottom of every email I send. So if you get an email from me, you'll see Galatians 2.20 at the bottom of it. And Galatians 2.20 is one of those verses that Christians like to put on bumper stickers and on mugs and on t-shirts. It reads this, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. The life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Now those words, if we understand them fully today, should change you drastically. There is a power in those words. They rightfully so should be on bumper stickers, on shirts, mugs, and much more than that. They should be on your tongue every day. And yet I think sometimes we have the bumper sticker yet don't fully know what it means. And our lives reveal that. So let's look at what's going on here. Paul has been, for the last bit, telling us his autobiography. Pretty much from the halfway through chapter 1, verse 11, all the way through to where we're starting today in verse, chapter 2, verse 11, Paul's been telling us his autobiography. And if you remember, Paul was literally an um, extreme Jewish terrorist. 
Paul was going around and in the name of Judaism, in the name of religion, in the name of God, persecuting Christians. And then God got a hold of him. Jesus revealed to him that he couldn't be saved by doing even extreme religious acts by like killing someone who he thought was opposed to God. That couldn't save him. In fact, that was distancing him even further from God. He said, the only way you can get made right with God is by placing your faith in Jesus. And Paul trusted in Christ. And we've been tracing his biography. And then we get to verses 11 through 14. Let me read these to us. 11, chapter 2, verse 11, page 973. But, this is still his biography, when Cephas, that's Peter. So if you remember, Peter was Jesus' closest friend, one of his inner disciples, one of the early leaders of the New Testament church. When Peter came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. Gentiles are non-Jewish people. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. That was a group of Jewish people. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step, hear that, when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? Now, let's try to understand this conflict. Galatians chapter 2 is a chapter in, that you should remember it, from the Bible. This is the conflict between Peter and Paul, Galatians chapter 2. And at the heart of the conflict is race and ethnocentrism. This is an argument that Paul basically is going to Peter and he's saying, your actions, what you're doing and how you're treating all the people around this dinner table is revealing that you're preaching justification by faith, you're preaching faith in Jesus, but you're living practically in your relationships with other people as if you still believe in the law. See, Peter got up from the table. He got up from the meal. Now, listen carefully to the words here. It was Peter's actions that revealed what his faith and what he actually believed was. His actions, in a sense, were serving as a mirror, as a window, if you will, into his mind and into his heart of what he believed about his relationship with God. Now, we got to know a couple things to make this story come to light. Let's walk through the story carefully. It says, when Peter came to Antioch, now that's a city. That was a church that Paul planted. And we read about Antioch in the book of Acts, chapters 11 and 13 specifically. Here's what we got to know about Antioch. Very important detail here. Antioch was like no other church. Antioch was the third largest city in the Roman Empire. Kind of like how Chicago is the third largest city in America. Antioch was an incredibly diverse city, but it was also an incredibly segregated city, kind of like Chicago. There were literally walls in Antioch that divided where all the races lived, kind of like Chicago, how there are streets that divide where the races tend to live in our city. Some neighborhoods tend to break that down, like South Loop being one of them. However, South Loop has its issues too, and we have not escaped these walls imperfectly. There's still a lot of work to be done. Antioch resembled Chicago in a lot of ways. Here were all these races that had come together, live in a city, yet they were living utterly distinct and separate lives, never coming together, and there was hostility between them to such a degree that they separated themselves by walls. You can go to Antioch today and look at the remnants of the walls. And then along comes Paul. Paul planted a church right in the middle of that city. 
And in what he did with that church is he went across all those dividing lines. He said, hey, you, get over here. You, get over here. You, get over here. You belong. <laughs> You're part of the leadership here. Your story, where you came from, your culture, your heritage, your language, your food, everything. It's all welcome here. That makes us stronger. That was what the church was in Antioch. In the third largest city in the entire Roman Empire, Paul created a diverse, multi-ethnic church. In Acts chapter 13, verse 1, one of the things we learned is that the way it worked was that he had leadership that was reflected of all those different cultures and countries that were part of that city, so that every single person felt like their voice was being heard. Paul brought them all together, and he said, in the midst of a city of hostility, let's show them how Jesus does it. Let's show them. Let's show them a true multi-ethnic family that loves each other, that does life together, that eats together, that shares family together. Let's do it. And it thrived. The church in Antioch, if you read through the book of Acts, the, 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 the ultimate church, the, the, the best example of biblical church is Antioch. Not Jerusalem. It's Antioch. That's where they start to get it right. That's where this conflict took place. The second thing we've got to know, and, and this is actually important, is that in Antioch, the book of Acts tells us that was actually the very first place where anyone took notice of the Christians and started calling them Christians. The word Christians started because the whole city of Antioch was looking on the church in Antioch and going, well, that's an interesting group of people. And notice, the term Christian literally means Christ one. See, they, people weren't just noticing that they were a bunch of different races getting in a room together and celebrating something. They were noticing the person they were worshiping, the subject and the object of their worship, Jesus Christ. And in, in fact, the word Christian was originally a term of derision. It was a way of making fun of those people, saying, oh, you crazy Christians, look at what you're doing. But the Christians took it as a badge of honor. They said, you're right. <laughs> That's who we are. We come together. We celebrate Jesus. We're Christ ones. You should know that about us. Number three is there was this early Christian practice. And we try to practice this in our small groups. I encourage every single small group to have a meal together every week. There was this early Christian practice that was called over history a love feast. And this has been confused over the years, but essentially what it was was a meal. They just got together. They ate food. It was a time of community, of fellowship. It was a time where people could talk about their differences and offer forgiveness to one another. And remember that they were imperfect people with imperfect paths coming together in the name of Jesus and saying, man, Jesus has set us right. Let's just throw a party and celebrate and have a good time together. And Christians were known for these feasts and meals they had together. That's the context for this conflict. Peter joins one of these feasts at the multi-ethnic church in Antioch, where the nations had gathered and were looking in and were saying, Christ is in the middle of that thing. Peter from Jerusalem comes and sits down. Now, i got to imagine for a moment for Paul. He was the, the church planter, the guy that got this church started. For Paul, this must have just been amazing. Here's Peter. Now, what we got to know about Peter was he was one of Jesus' closest disciples, a very Jewish guy, and he was leading the church in Jerusalem at the time. It was almost all Jewish people around him. He was around one whole type of race of people that had the same kind of background. So even though he was preaching the multi-ethnic church, even though he was preaching that the gospel brings different people together, Jew and Gentile primarily, he really wasn't living in the midst of that day to day. Peter comes and visits Paul at Antioch, and he sits down at this table. Here's a man who's not used to this type of setting, and he's enjoying it. 
He's got, he's got the food from the nations at his table. He's got tacos over here. You know, he's got, he's got, I don't know, all these different types of food coming in from all over the places. And man, I haven't had some of this food in my whole life. But not only that, I've got the diversity of the people around me and Jesus is being glorified. And I can just imagine Peter sitting down being like, this is good. And I can imagine Paul, the church planner, sitting over here saying, this is grace. This is it. This is what it looks like. This is the church on fire. The world is taking notice of this. Peter's come up from Jerusalem, and even he, as the leader of the Jewish church, he's come in and he is participating. Yes! Man, let the world see the church at Antioch. That's what's going to change people. And into that, a group of people line up along the back of the wall. They were the Judaizers. We've met these people all in the book, already in the book of Galatians. The Judaizers had a very particular message. The Judaizers believed that though there were Jew and Gentile, and though Christ had come and done away with the law, and now we're free, and we don't find our justification in God by following the law, but we find it by trusting in Christ, the Judaizers were saying there's still a difference between Jewish people and non-Jewish people. And if you really want to accomplish anything in life spiritually, you've got to follow the Old Testament law. It's not good enough to live in that freedom. And so when they saw Peter sitting at a table with a bunch of people who the Old Testament law said he shouldn't be sitting at a table with, they were saying, Peter's breaking the law. And here they were, standing on the back of the line. Everyone's having a party. Everyone's enjoying each other, except for these grumpy, miserable people who are looking at Peter over there saying, I can't believe him. How dare he eat with them? Doesn't he know that's unclean? Peter buys it. Peter succumbs to the peer pressure. He sees a group of people that he wants to impress. Maybe he even wants to reach them with the gospel. Maybe that was part of his motivation. And in the midst of the joyous feast of the nations, Peter gets up and walks away to go eat in a secluded room with just the Jewish people. Now, in that moment, can you imagine three things? Number one, can you imagine what must have gone through Peter's mind? I just imagine him being like, why would I ever want to leave this? I don't want to go back to this. Can you imagine what was going through Paul's mind, the planter of the church, saying, Peter, you're going to ruin it. People are going to look in and they're going to start thinking we're just like everybody else and they're going to miss the freedom that we have in Christ. And then can you imagine the people in the room who were experiencing what it was like to be fully in Christ and not separated because of their race, their ethnicity, or their background, but all were equal in Christ because all were sinners, all needed the grace of Christ, and then to see Peter, the leader of the church, get up and leave, can you imagine what that did to them? Imagine that moment when when they felt the leader the loudest, strongest voice in all first century Christianity, get up and leave them and say, I can't eat with you. It must have crushed them. And Paul freaks out. I mean, this is no light, light conflict here. Paul, the planter of the church, does not mix his words. He walks straight up to Peter. Now, I want you to know there is a time for good, godly, righteous indignation where the gospel is being trampled because Christians are trampling it and you have permission to go up and and confront people directly on the terms of the Bible. 
Not, not out of a way of trying to stick it to them or trying to get them or trying to do it, but to defend the gospel and to make sure that we are not mixing this up. We live in such a, a society that is afraid to confront people that we let so much go on within the walls of the church and we never confront each other in brotherly love. And, and look at this, brotherly love can have hard words with it. You don't have to be gentle about this. If someone's doing something that's trampling on the truth of the gospel, like Peter was doing, tell them in love. But directly, Paul goes up. Peter, you're way out of line. You have no right to behave this way. You preach that Christ has done away with the law, but you're still separating yourself. And because of that, you're acting like a hypocrite. Paul uses the word hypocrite. Now, I have a question for you. If you were to go to your atheist, secular, or agnostic friends, and you were to ask them what they think about evangelical Christianity, you know what the number one thing they would say is? There's so many hypocrites. They say they believe something, but their actions are proving something else. Now, half the time, I think they're wrong. Half the time, I think that they actually are just misunderstanding us. And the other half the time, I think they're right. I think a lot of times, we do just what Peter's doing. We've got all this stuff we say about Jesus, all this belief that he's set us free, what he's done to the nations, how we are no longer bound by the law, enslaved by sin, but set free in Christ, and we are joyful. And yet something about our actions isn't in line with that, and rightfully so, some people call us hypocrites, just as Peter was. Now, if you're a hypocrite in this room, good news, Peter went first. <laughs> That's good news for me. I'll tell you what is good news for me, because I act like a hypocrite all the time, and I catch myself, or you catch me, and you let me know about it, and I'm grateful for that. Hypo hypocrisy, it's not the end of the world if you find yourself in hypocrisy. What is a disaster is when we let it go unaccounted for, and we just let it become our normalcy. Hypocrisy unaccounted for that becomes normalcy, that's deadly. Now, here's what happens. Why did Peter do this? Why? It was because he felt the peer pressure of people he wanted approval from. He had this joy. Just imagine him at that meal. Imagine him just relishing and being like, I've never experienced this. And yet he allowed that joy to be tempered. You ever had a joy in Jesus and you want to shout it from the rooftops? You wanted to sing it with your windows down, like those crazy people you see driving, just dancing in the car. You wanted to be that person. But then you're like, maybe I should just roll my windows up a little bit because this song has the name Jesus in it, right? Oh, maybe I shouldn't let the car next to me hear how loud I'm singing gospel music. Oh, I want to post so much that Jesus is the one who gave me this sunrise. Oh, but I got so many friends who would think that was weird. So I'm just going to say, what a beautiful sunrise this is. We temper our zeal. We got so much to say about what we believe, but because there's peer pressure for other people weighing in on our life, saying, that's kind of strange, you Christ one. We don't wear it like a badge of honor. We separate ourselves and go right back to the law, trying to say, you know what, you know what, world, you're right. It's just about moral superiority, and I just got to blend in with everybody else. Peter's a kind of normal guy in our day and age. Now, what happens next is fascinating. He, he kind of gets done with the story portion, but rather than condemning Peter based on his actions, rather than saying, Peter, don't do this, do this, 
Rather than adding more law of what Peter should be doing, he gets right down to his heart. And he begins to expose the heart. He says this, Galatians chapter 2, verses 15 and 16. We ourselves are Jews by birth. I think he's talking about Paul and Peter there. They were Jewish people by birth. And not Gentiles. We're not non-Jews, we're Jews. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. Did you notice what word he used three times in that one single verse? Justified. I was going to say, it starts with a J. Someone beat me to it. Justified. Justified. Do we have an understanding of what justification is? See, for Peter, he's tr- for Paul, he's trying to uncover what it was that Peter did wrong. And he's getting to his heart, and then he pounces on Peter's understanding of justification. Let me explain what justification is for you. In the Bible, there's two words that are very similar to each other that come together to form the word justification, our English word. On the one side, justification means that all your sin is taken care of. It means that we come before God and we have sin in our hearts. We are sinners by nature because of the fall. And that when we approach God, there is a chasm, there's a gulf, there is a rift between us and God because of our sin, because God is holy. Justification means something's been done to take care of that sin. That all the debt we owe God has been paid for in full. But there's this other part of it as well. Justification doesn't just mean that your sin's been paid for, but it goes further and says that you now have a righteous standing before God. Justification takes care of your sin on the one side, but on the other hand, it's a medal of honor that God gives you. He says, I've done away with your sin, now come over here. I got the medal of honor to place on your shoulder. You're righteous, not because of your own righteousness that you've earned, but because Jesus earned it on your behalf, and now he gives it to you. Here's what that means. When Jesus Christ looks down on you, if you've been justified by placing your faith in Jesus, when God looks down on you, even though you are covered in sin, and there should be a gulf that exists between you and God that is inseparable, you can never get through it based on your good works, you can never get to God on your own. When God sees you, he sees Jesus standing between you and God, and God looks down and sees Jesus' righteousness covering you. What that means is that even though you are full of sin, even though you don't have your life together, even though you got a long ways to go in this thing we call the Christian faith, and we are hypocrites much of the time, when God looks down on you, there is a freedom because he now sees Jesus' righteousness covering you. See the freedom in that. That's what justification is. Now, if that doesn't want to make you shout hallelujah, I don't think I preach what justification is clearly. Justification means that you are now right with God, not because of what you've done, but because of what Jesus has done on your behalf. You couldn't get there on your own. That's what grace is. Thank you. I got it over here. Got it over here. Now, here's the problem. If we get that, why do we return to the law so often? We have this freedom and Peter, Paul says to Peter, if you're not going to eat with the nations, then you must believe that in some way you're better than them. That's what you're saying by getting up from that table. Or if you're not saying you're better than them, you're in some way saying that you're different than them. And that's no better. 
Peter, if you're going to get up from this table, what you're saying is that what you really believe is you are more morally superior to the rest of the people at this dinner table, and you need to be separated from them. And if you believe that, then you're no different than anyone else throughout history and all the religion we've ever had that says that at the end of the day, it's about how we morally approve ourselves before God, believing that other people aren't as good as us or that we've achieved something in our life. He's saying, if you get up from this table, you're tearing down what Christ has, you're, you're putting back up what Christ has already torn down, the law. He goes on, that's exactly what he says, verse 17 and 18. But if our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. That might, that might sound confusing, but what he's saying is, Peter, if you get up from that table, you're basically rebuilding the wall. You're, you're, you're forsaking the freedom that God has given to us through faith in Jesus Christ because every single person is a sinner. We're all the same in this room. We all have a chasm between us and God, no matter what your background is, wraith, ethnicity, or block that you come from. When you stand in this room, all of us are sinners covered by the grace of Jesus Christ. It's the one thing we all have in common. Nothing separates us. Peter, you walk out, you're saying you think you're separate. Today, I can't think of anything that so pinpointedly characterizes the city of Chicago and sometimes the church in Chicago. We're separated by block. We're separated by neighborhood. We're separated by race. We're separated by socioeconomic status. Sometimes we're separated by age. We're separated by stories. In many ways, we still live underneath this. And the reality is, is that this room, this is phenomenal. I don't know how long you've been here, but this is not how this church always looked, just so you know. What's happened here, the diversity in this room, though we still have a long ways to go, the diversity that's present in this room right now, this has been the work of hard work, the work of love, the work of crossing boundaries that hadn't been crossed before, and getting after the work of building a multi-ethnic church. And we are not there yet. We still got a long ways to go, but something's happened in here. And those who have been around for a while, you feel it, right? You, you sense the spirit at work in a place like this where you're saying, man, this is good. It's different, but it's good. I don't want to go back to where I was before. In our church, I think it's easy for us to come together on a Sunday as a multi-ethnic community because, frankly, God's done something wonderful here. It's a unique gathering. But the big question for me is not if we can come together on Sunday as a multi-ethnic community, but if we can come together on Monday for dinner. And I'm not sure if we do that all that well. See, see, if our multi-ethnic understanding of the gospel it settles for coming together in the formality of Sunday worship, that means you're not doing life with each other, you don't really know their stories, and ultimately you're keeping yourself separate from each other. And all of this is just a formality. And it's easy to love the formality of it, because honestly, it's one of the blessings of the multi-ethnic church is that it's fun, it's good, it's just, it fills you with something wonderful. But I wonder if through the week, if our actual relationships and our dinner tables reflect the diversity of the room we're here on Sunday. And not just does it reflect it, but are, but are we actually doing life and sharing the intimate spaces of our life with each other in such a way that I care about my brother and sister across the aisle? I want to know their story. I want to know their background. I want to be changed by their background. It goes both ways. Are both sides of this reaching out across the table to each other? It's not just if we can do church together on Sunday, but can we do dinner on Monday? The second thing that I think oftentimes, this is how we play this out, is how we think about our nature. 
Some of us are rule followers. Any of you naturally a rule follower? Yeah, we got a bunch. My wife is a rule follower, <laughs> right? She just loves, she wants to know the rules. And frankly, sometimes I think rule followers can really hate grace. <laughs> I love my wife. That was not a comment towards my wife. <laughs> She's not in the room. She's leading the kids ministry today. Scott, don't tell her I said that. Right? Sometimes I think rule followers can actually hate grace. Here's why. Because if you're a rule follower, you want to know what the rules are so that you can complete the rules and get them done. Rule followers. You probably got straight A's in school, not because you wanted intelligence, but because you wanted to make sure you did what you were supposed to do in school. Maybe you never drank. Maybe you never did drugs. Maybe you didn't have sex before marriage. Maybe you never did all the stuff that everyone said is some kind of sin. And a rule follower prides themselves on the fact that they have done something. They've achieved something. And grace to them is totally unfair. Jesus told this story. He told this parable about these workers who were in a field. And some workers got their first thing in the morning, and the man who owned the field said, hey, you work for me all day, and I'll pay you this much. I'll pay you X amount. And so they got there early. These were the rule followers. I want to get there early. I want to do my job. I want to work hard. I want to earn my paycheck. Then the very end of the day, the last hour, a new group of people come. One hour left to work. These people have been working all day. The, the owner of the field hires the guys who come in at the last hour, and then they all come to get their paycheck at the end of the day, and the owner of the field pays the guys who got there at the beginning the same as the guys who got there at the end. And you know what happens? The rule followers go, what is that? I work for you all day. And the owner of the field says, don't I have the right to give to you the exact amount I told you I'd give to you and to give to them as much as I said I would give to them? See, see, Jesus levels all the playing field when it comes to grace. It doesn't matter if you have been a rule follower since you were two years old and you think you've never broken a rule or if you have been enslaved to sin since you were two years old and you've broken every single rule there is to break and some that I don't even know about. At the end of the day, both those people stand underneath God in need of grace. Both of us stand with a chasm between us and the rule follower oftentimes hates grace because what they want people to say to them is I want to come to church so someone can tell me what I'm supposed to do to be a good person. And Jesus wipes that away. And if you're in church because that, you think that's what you're supposed to do to be a good person, you don't know what Galatians 2.20 means. That says I've been crucified with Christ and it's no longer I who live but it's Christ who lives in me. People who have been crucified with Christ aren't looking for how to be a good person. They're looking how to love Jesus because they've confessed that they are not a good person and they're in need of salvation from someone else. Rule followers have a hard time with this and you need to learn what it means to be crucified with Christ. Now maybe you're on the other side of this. Maybe you are the, the one who's broken every rule. Maybe you are the one who was sneaking out when you were a kid. You are the one who's had problems in your childhood. You were the one who was in and out of jail when you were growing up. You are the one who had all types of brokenness and drugs and violence and anything you think you can list off of vices in your life. Maybe you're in here today, as many people's story is when I come on a Sunday, by the way, because you haven't gotten any sleep all night because you just came off a, a binger at the local bar and you're coming in here and you're wondering if anyone can smell the alcohol that's on you. Now, if that's you, there's good news here. Grace says there's no amount of sin you can bring to the table that Jesus cannot cover. Grace says no matter how deep, no matter how vile, no matter how dirty you think your sin is, Jesus can cover it. That's how good he is. That's what grace is. Every single day is a new day. 
Every single day, Jesus looks down on you. God looks down on you. If you put your faith in Jesus Christ, he looks down on you and he doesn't see your sin. He sees Jesus standing on your behalf and all his righteousness. He says, I see Jesus' righteousness. It's yours. I count it to you as your own. That's what grace is. But for you, what your problem might be is that you think, man, I got to get my life together before I get into this church thing. I got to figure out how to quit drinking. I got to quit those addictions I have. I got some bad friends that do some bad stuff, and I got to figure out how to, I don't, know, cause, I don't know, separate myself from them somehow. And you're in the same exact camp. You haven't yet learned what it means to be crucified with Christ. Because to be crucified with Christ means first and foremost that you are no longer able to say, I can somehow overcome my morality on my own. I need Jesus. I put to death that concept that I can achieve something, and I put my full trust in Jesus that he's earned it on my behalf. See, both those people find themselves in the same camp. Or maybe you're a third type of person. Maybe you're like I was. I was 17 years old. Here's how I would have categorized myself. I said, you know what? I'm a overall, not full rule follower, but pretty, pretty much a rule follower. Good guy, I think. Uh, I don't cause too much problems. I mean, sure, there's the drinking and the promiscuity and all the other stuff that I was doing back when I was 17 years old. But overall, I'd, I'd, if you were to ask me, does my good outweigh my bad? Yeah, I'm a good guy. I mean, I, I see my friends who are around doing a whole bunch more stuff than I'm doing. Maybe that's you. And maybe you're in here today and you're thinking, man, I'm, I'm neither of those extremes. But at the end of the day, I'm one of those good guys. And I, I got something to offer. And then someone sat me down when I was 17. They looked me in my eyes and said, hey, are you a Christian? And for the first time, I... I looked at someone who had an actual conviction about what it meant to be a Christian. I'd never seen that in anyone's eyes before, ever. I'd heard the word Christianity. I'd grown up going in and out of the Catholic Church growing up. I'd been around Jesus' stuff, but never had anyone with conviction in their eyes said, are you a Christian, with the understanding that there were people who were not Christians and there were people who were Christians. And right there, I just say, whatever you're talking about, it's not me, because I don't get your eyes right now. And that sent me on a journey of learning what it meant to be a Christian. And learning what it meant to be a Christian was that there's no such thing as good guys who just make it. Christians are those who say, I am broken through and through. And me and the person next to me, whether you fall on the left side of that camp or the right side of the camp, we all share the same story. Our sin has broken us. It's broken everyone around us. I got the scars to prove it, and other people have the scars to prove that my sins hurt them. And I have a great separation between me and God, and the only thing that can justify me before God is Jesus Christ, his death on the cross, substituting himself in my place to pay the penalty for my sin. That's how bad my sin was. No matter what three of, those, three of those categories you find yourself in today, all three of us need to hear the message that we are saved by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. For through the law, I died to the law. Galatians 2, chapter 19. Through the law, I died to the law. That means I no longer am pursuing righteousness through trying to be a good guy so that I might live to God. You know what that means? It means so that I might have joy, might I live, actually encounter what it means to be alive the way God designed me to live in flourishing ways. That I might live to God. I've been crucified with Christ and it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. That means I've put to death this way of saying I can do something on my own. 
everything I am is now about faith in Jesus Christ. And the life I now live, I live, in, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. Christ loved you and gave himself for you. You know, there's two ways we live this out today. Two very clear ways. And one is, is very specifically about how you live your life in terms of your relationship with God. Some of you are still seeing yourself as good enough. And frankly, you haven't learned what the thief on the cross learned. See, the thief on the cross was hanging next to Jesus, and the reason he was on the cross was not like Jesus. Jesus was hung on a cross for crimes he didn't commit. The thief was hung on a cross for crimes he did commit, as far as we know. Hanging on a cross, and in his dying breaths, he looks over to Jesus, and he's got nothing to offer Jesus. Some of you are still thinking you got something to offer Jesus. Some of you are still thinking you, you, you got something, You're, you, you got it, you got it together. You can teach someone down the block a thing or two. You haven't learned what it means to be crucified with Christ. You gotta learn the, the, the lesson that the thief on the cross learned, which is I got nothing to offer you. Here's what I'm gonna do. I'm just gonna call out the name of Jesus as loud as I can and trust that that's enough to cover my sin. If you haven't called out the name of Jesus in that way yet, I want you to hear that's what it means to be crucified with Christ. You put to death the notion that you got anything to offer God on your own. Some of you need to learn how to relate to other people in a gospel-centered, justified way. If you are still living a separated life in this city, this city, this is a unique city. We got a history here. We got a big history here. Racism, segregation across lines and blocks, violence and hostility, Antioch, 21st century, Chicago. If we're still living separated, functioning lives in this city, might I even say, after being invited into this family, I'm not sure if you know what the crucified life looks like yet. Or I'm not sure if it's fully worked its way into you the way that God desires to work it into you. The crucified life is one that says there is nothing that separates me from anybody else anymore. My story is their story. We're sinners, that we need grace. Therefore, my brother, no matter how different it looks, no matter how different the story, no matter how different the block or how different the cultural experience, is my brother in Christ, and it is my joy because the wall of hostility has been broken down. And now the city of Chicago needs to look in and say, those are Christ ones. That's what it looks like. And if you're not participating in that, I want you to hear what it means to be crucified with Christ. You have been justified because of your faith in Jesus. And Paul says that works itself out in the way you have dinner. In the way you sit down at your dinner table and celebrate with the people around you. Those two things are tied hand in hand. I want to encourage you this morning. God is doing something tremendous in this room. This is, this is just a joy. And I want to invite you into the fullness of it. Life should continually be looking different for you as different people pour and invest into your life. And people's lives around you should be touched by your life and your story as you're investing in them. If you haven't started that journey with us, it is a joy. And I invite you into it. It's as simple as saying, I want, I want what Scripture desires for the church, especially in a city like Chicago. 
Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we are grateful this morning. God, we recognize that we bring nothing to the table. All we have is what Christ has given us. So forgive us when we are hypocrites, like Peter. I need that grace every day. But at the same time, don't let us stay in the posture of hypocrisy. Let us do something about this. Let us be people that are intentional about our justification. Let it not just stay between us and God, but move out into us and other people. God, we need your spirit to do that because when left to our own, we just end up separating ourselves even further. God, by grace, would you move powerfully in us? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.